Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Slumber Party Massacre, The Timeline. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. how things led up to the massacre in Henrietta, Oklahoma, what we've dubbed the Slumber Party Massacre, and just how culpable the various parties involved are, it's extremely important to understand the timeline in this case. How you assess this case is all about what you know about this case and not all information out there is accurate. This case has been clouded with blame, shame, and personal vendettas instead of learning the truth, putting it out there, and then creating change. It's crucial to do your due diligence in taking reports as cold hard evidence by validating what you hear, read, see, and not what you're told by the various news and podcast platforms out there. News outlets, social media, and some poorly informed podcast shows are often quick to put out the latest and greatest information without confirming if their information is accurate or not. Unfortunately, we are finding that most information has not been validated. The state is being quiet because they want this case to die down. The state of Oklahoma is responsible for the deaths of these families, loved ones, and that should be the focus at this time. At the other end of your comments about what parents should have done, could have done, should have noticed, etc., is a family grieving the loss of a family member or family members. But put yourself in their shoes and try to have some empathy. Remember that this could have happened to you and your loved ones, and treat others how you'd like to be treated if that were the case. everybody so with the timeline we really wanted to kind of guide you guys through where everything kind of started and then culminating with what the most recent information is that we've uncovered and also that has come out in recent days so we're going to start at 1983 and august 24th this is when jesse lee mcfadden was born to Ladonna jean mcfadden there is no father that i could find and there's no listing really anywhere where it shows that LaDonna has ever been married. And that's McFadden's mom. So unknown as to um, who the father is of uh, McFadden. So then fast forward to 1988. That's about five years later. And Holly Tanette L. Mayo was born to Michael Anthony Mayo and Jeanette Louise Mayo in El Paso, Texas. 
On July 12th of the same year, Cody Ray McFadden is born to LaDonna Jean McFadden. Again, no father that could be found. Do you know if Cody and Jesse had the same father? You know, I don't know because when I first saw Cody, Cody looks very Indian to me. Yeah. And actually, he is a registered Indian in Oklahoma. So he definitely has Indian in him. I don't see that in Jesse McFadden, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they could just look a little bit different. Yeah. So now fast forward to 1995. McFadden was in fifth grade. That would have made him 12 years old. He went to Indianola Middle School. That's in Indianola, Oklahoma. That's interesting. He would have been in fifth grade and he was 12 at the time. Yeah, I actually think he's a little bit old for fifth grade. And maybe only, you know, depending on how he might have actually started school a whole year later because his birthday was on October 24th. So based on his birth, he could have actually just, depending on how the, the school's requirements are. So... But I, even at 12, I still think he may have at least been held back a year. He still would have been behind a year. Yeah. Even if he would have started school one year late, he still would be one year too old for that grade. So I that means think. either, yeah, so that means either he was held back a year or two years, depending on when he started school. So that makes me wonder whether Jesse had a learning disability, because a learning disability may have been a reason why he would have, he would have been held back in one of those grades of like kindergarten, first grade, second grade, if right. he was having a hard time with, with learning. That makes a lot of sense. Is there any evidence to support that he may have had a learning disability? You know, honestly, I don't know. I haven't really heard anybody come out and talk a whole lot about him. I'd really love to speak to LaDonna McFadden just to kind of understand about both her sons, honestly, to see if there was anything in their lives early on that could have played into how they ended up as adults, you know? Yeah. So a lot of mystery there. One thing is that in 1999, McFadden would have been about 16 years old. This would be the year, based on if he hadn't been held back another year, he should have been in the ninth grade. And according to some legal paperwork that he had submitted, he indicated that ninth grade was his last year of school. However, I couldn't find any documentation for him past the fifth grade. So I honestly don't know if he attended school past the fifth grade. Yeah. But in 1999, at some point, it's alleged that he had sexually assaulted a sixth grader on a school bus. So if he was in school, that would kind of make sense. It's a small area. They could have been on a bus going to both schools. It's very possible. Supposedly, LaDonna McFadden, who's his mom, called the mother of the girl, kind of minimized the assault and really begged her to, to keep it at their level, not to turn McFadden in, and everything kind of got swept under the rug. So that sexual assault never went reported. It went unreported, which is is truly sad. I'm sure the mother of that child was trying to do her best to protect her kid at the time, but I also know that many years later into the future, that same mother would be advising her daughter to stay out of everything else that was going on when it was reported that there was another sexual assault as a result of Jesse. That same mother was like, stay out of it. Don't get involved. It honestly could have been out of fear that, okay, I thought this was a simple experimental thing between kids. You know, I don't, I don't know what the mindset was, but they could have thought it had something to do with the age 
and didn't think it was as, as serious as it was until you fast forward and something happens later. And then now you're nervous because you're like, oh, now I feel guilty because I should have come forward. I would challenge that. And the reason why I would challenge that is because from my understanding, what was communicated to that child was, if you tell anyone, I'll kill you. You're talking about from McFadden. Yeah. Got McFadden it. told the child, the sixth grader, if you tell anyone, I'll kill you. Who that, then that, went home and told their mom. Right. So because of that, I wouldn't say, like, I don't know. People it can have different maturity levels depending on their age. If it would have been like a like a little innocent thing, like that threat wouldn't have been made. And the fact that he made the threat tells me he knew what he was doing was wrong. Yeah. And at that age, you wouldn't think that somebody would even jokingly make a statement like that. But now my question is, is that learned? Could be. There's a lot That's of... pretty aggressive for, for being 16. That's not something that I would have been thinking about at 16. I definitely think that's true. So fast forward to 2002. On December 3rd, McFadden, who's 19 at the time, he indicates on legal documents that he had stopped working at Walmart. So he had worked for a brief period of time at Walmart. Says he worked there about three to four months. And then a few weeks later, on December 20th, he broke into his grandfather's home, who lived in McAllister, and he stole $64,000. I don't know who, st- who keeps $64,000 at home, but yeah, interesting. Obviously, he knew it was there in order to go, go and take it. So, If you kind of look at where they lived, this whole area is in a very isolated area. It is a small area. Yeah. Well, I'm saying that it's because not, but but it's not like hours away from a bank or No, but but like it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of commerce going on there. Like there's not a lot of stuff going on. And also you're talking about a generation of people that didn't believe in in the security of banks and maybe lived through the Great Depression and a lot of those guys like to put their money in the mattress. They like to keep in their money in the mattress or keep their money in a safe or doing something illegal. And therefore, they keep it in cash. They can't deposit it in the bank because then that raises a flag. So that would be one of the reasons why I would think somebody would be holding on to $64,000 in their house. That's a lot of money. Um, His grandfather did have a business. His grandfather grew up and attended schools in the Cooper community and graduated from Savannah High School. He moved to Wichita, Kansas and founded the Wichita Fence Company. He later Mm. moved back to McAllister and started McAllister Fence Company which he owned and operated until his retirement in 2004. He passed away in 2005, so just a year after he retired, yeah. So about two or three years after he was robbed by his grandson. Yes. Wow. Something else that it says in his obituary that's a little bit interesting is that it says he enjoyed coon hunting his entire life and was a member of the Pittsburgh County Coon Hunting Association for a number of years. Coon hunting is hella fun. (laughs) <laughs> Tell me how you coon hunt. Huh? <laughs> you find a coon and you hunt it. <laughs> I think it's a raccoon. I don't know. I don't know what the hell coon hunting is, but it sounds like it's fun. <laughs> it sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> and actually on, on his headstone, it says gone hunting. I might so. have to Google that and figure out what, the, what that is, what coon <laughs> hunting really is. Following the theft, sometime within that time frame, McFadden would go to Kansas for a little while and then return on February 14th. And of course he was having to come back anyways because of his court dates. Quick question. In December, when McFadden stole the money from his grandfather, I'm assuming his grandfather found out and called the cops. 
He did. He pressed charges. He pressed charges. So he was arrested. Yes. Right. And I will say that at the at the time of his grandfather's death, which didn't happen until 2005, his grandfather, I don't believe, was married to his grandmother anymore. Okay. I think that when he went to Oklahoma, I think he might have, they might have already not been together. And how old was his grandfather when he passed? Do you know? He was born in 1935. Jeez. He definitely grew up in the Great Depression. 1935. Well, how old would he have been? 70. 70? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> I ain't that old. Man. <laughs> so old that, as dirt. 70 is not that old. <laughs> it's not that old. So now um, going into 2003, at this point, he's been in Kansas. He's kind of having to go back and forth, at least for his court appearances. On February 14th of 2003, at the age of 19 still, he pleads no contest to speeding. He was going 98 and a 70. This was dismissed. I'm pretty sure that paid a fine. They probably didn't. They did arrest him for it. Yeah, because it was reckless driving. Oh, wow. But it was dismissed. I'm pretty sure he paid a fine, and that was probably it. He doesn't have a lengthy traffic record. Then on March 28th, he submits an application for counsel and claims he has no money for his case for grand larceny, which is what he would be charged with with his grandfather due to the amount being over $500. When you submit an application for counsel, what happens is they verify that basically that you don't have money to pay for an attorney and then they provide you with an attorney. So and that's part of what they read you when they read you your Miranda rights. So if you, if you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. So he submitted an application and I guess between December and March, um, that $64,000 was gone. Jeez. So I'm not sure what that $64,000 was spent on or if it, if it changed hands. I don't know what the deal is, but. Well, we do know he had a drug problem. That is true. That is true. And he, he himself admitted that um, even in some, of the, in some of the legal paperwork that would come out later, he admitted that he had a drug problem. Yeah. I just don't know. I think he would be dead spending $64,000 on, mm. on some drugs. Yeah. But that's some heavy drugs, and that's a lot of drugs. So. Unless you're. Like just partying a lot. Like I, I can, I can see somebody spending sixty four. One it's, person? Huh? I'm sure it wasn't just him. I'm sure it's him and all his friends and all the guys he's all hanging out friends? with. And when he was doing what he was doing, I'm sure he had friends. Like I'm sure he was hanging out with other people. Yeah, yeah, it's probably true. He probably did have some friends. Drug addicts never like to do drugs by themselves. They always like company. They always want to be high with somebody else. On April first, he's appointed counsel attorney Bill Layden for the case. On April 4th, he goes in for his preliminary hearing for that case and his bond is reduced to $5,000 from $10,000. His attorney's present. So he comes up with $500 and gets out of jail. Yes. Then on April 17th, he pleads guilty and the sentence is deferred to April 15th, 2008. And basically what that means is that because they gave him two years probation and he set up a payment plan of how he would pay the money back because that was one of the requirements was that he pay the money back. So when they defer a sentence, they defer it to a particular date, basically stating if you violate your parole or anything of that nature, you don't do on um, the things that you've agreed to do within the agreement, then you'll basically be tried for that case. You'll be charged with that case. Right. So, so then on April 28th, McFadden on some legal documentation 
indicates that he's married to a Stephanie McFadden, who is a U.S. Army soldier. It's interesting. I could find nothing showing a marriage license, a divorce decree, and I looked in every state that he appeared to have lived in at any point in time, and I couldn't find anything. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't anything. Some states don't post a lot of stuff online. Some stuff you have to go, you know, physically to like the the courthouse to to gain access to things. Yeah. So there could be something out there, but it does make me wonder just a little bit if he was divorced. So because divorces cost more than getting married, and he obviously didn't often have money, and spent the majority of his life in prison. So I don't know. I don't know if he could quite possibly still be married. Yeah. If he was married. And. 2003 was during the initial invasion of Iraq. That's when a lot of soldiers were going to Iraq in 2003. That was right after the initial invasion. That's interesting. So she could have, if he was married, she could have been deployed. She could have been, you know, any number of places in the world. So could have even been a deal because you know how soldiers make deals because they get more money when they deploy and oh. married. So who knows? So it could be real. It could not be real. But her name's Stephanie. Maiden name I do not know. But he lists her as Stephanie McFadden. On November 2nd, McFadden rapes Crystal D. Strong, who's 17 at the time and a minor. Had just turned 17. Had just turned 17, yes. Had just had her birthday. He's arrested that same day for rape. And he's held on $50,000 bond. When they found him, he was sitting by a body of water somewhere in the community, and he had slit his wrists um, in attempts to commit suicide. One of the things that was very interesting with the timing of when this happened is that, one, he was dating not the Holly that everybody knows of, who he was married to in 2023, but a Holly from his past who lived in that community. He had a girlfriend at the time, also, he was in violation of his probation at the time. He had been in violation of his probation for at least six months. He had paid none of the money that he was required to pay as part of his agreement. And so he should have been locked up. Right. At that time, he should have been in jail. Yes. That should have never occurred. So he's, this happens on, on the 2nd. He's arrested on the 2nd. And then on the 3rd is when... They let him know what his bond is and all of that. And, of course, because he's in violation of his probation, which the senior person who was in charge said he hasn't done nothing, like zero. He's done absolutely nothing that had anything to do with his case. So he was in violation of that case. So when they, they went through and started processing the case for his rape charge, this ended up kind of being included in that case because he was in violation of his probation. I do want to talk a little bit about that situation because we kind of glanced over it. And I know we covered it in another podcast when we did uh, um, the interview with Crystal Strong. But he was at a party where Crystal was also at with his girlfriend, Holly. Not the Holly that we all know. Right. But the Holly from his childhood. Holly was friends with Crystal Strong. They were f lifelong friends. They were friends for a very, very long time. And so that was the connection between him and Crystal Strong. Yes. He ended up just showing up at her trailer in the middle of the night and banging on her door. And she opened it to find out who was banging on the door. And 
that's where the assault happened. And a couple of things that are interesting to me about that is that they were at the same party in right. the same location. In McAllister. Yes. And Crystal had drank and she didn't feel like she was wasted or anything like that. But she didn't feel like she could drive. So a friend of hers brought her home and dropped her off. So she was staying with her, her dad and her stepmom. And her stepmom was the only one home at the time. And she told her stepmom she was going to go stay at a friend's house. And she lied to go to a party like most kids do. Like we've all done. Yeah. And so it just so happened that on that same night, her stepmother is very close to her mom. And um, she went to stay with her mother and wasn't there at the house. So when McFadden showed up, Crystal was home alone and... Her vehicle wasn't there, so when her stepmom drove by, she didn't see a vehicle, didn't think anything of it because Crystal was supposed to be at a friend's house, and even her friends who passed by didn't see her vehicle there. So so nobody thought, like, hey, let me go check on her or, or, or anything yeah. of that nature, like that she would even be home. Sure. So pretty brutal incident. If you don't know her story, I definitely encourage you to listen to the podcast that we did with her. It really sheds light on who Crystal is. As a survivor. Absolutely. And it shows you the demon that Jesse McFadden is or was. I think that interview really does a good job of showing you the strength of Crystal and how strong she was in terms of how she has dealt with that and how she's overcome that incident in her life that typically can break people and how she's so valiantly sharing her story and encouraging other people to share their stories and other people to come forward. It's really inspiring. If you haven't listened to her in any other interview, definitely listen to her in that interview because I feel like we did a good job in that interview of really telling her story. It's not Jesse's story. It's her story. Right. I agree. Yes, very strong, even even at a young age. And it, and it really kind of, you see what somebody has to go through and how it's not a simple something happens and you get over it in a short period of time. You really get to see what somebody has to go through to get through something like that. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty amazing story. One of the things that caught my attention when Crystal told us her story that just immediately when she said it indicated to me that that was not his first time to rape somebody. And it was that, and I just wanted to call that out real quick, but it's that after he assaulted her, he then told her to go in the bathroom, shower, and then took all her clothes that would have had any type of DNA or anything like that on it and told her to go wash their clothes. Not just her clothes, but his clothes too. Threw her the clothes and said, here, go wash these clothes. And that was when she was able to make her escape. But that right there is something that somebody who has been assaulting people, that's something that that, that person would do. And I agree with that. And I would point out that the fact that he had the situation when he was 16... Three years later, he has this situation with Crystal. So there's a three-year span from when he began assaulting women, girls, to the time that he got caught. How many other times did he not get caught? How many other victims are there in that span of three years? Right. From when he was 16 to when he was 19. I guess he had just turned 20, but 20. Yeah. And what's crazy is that there's some pretty extensive research that talks about how only 3% of offenders who have sexually assaulted somebody ever get jail time. That right. is such a extremely low number. And so if you take that into account, when you think about this three-year time span, it leaves me to believe that there's some other survivors out there of McFadden that have not come forward yet. Right. 
on November 4th, McFadden is assigned attorney Russell Takira for this case. So the attorney that we talked about earlier was for the case with his grandfather for the grand larceny. Now, a name that you'll hear commonly throughout most of McFadden's case is Judge James Bland. Judge James Bland is on a lot of documents that have to do with McFadden. The district attorney often changes depending on who just happens to be there during whatever period of time that paperwork is coming in and out or when there's, you know, a hearing or whatnot. He pretty much, for the most part, through most periods of time, has the same attorney. You'll hear a few different names, but for the most part, he has the same attorney throughout most of it. Is there anything that we know about James Bland as, as a judge? He, at this time, is... Coon hunting? <laughs> so he's been an attorney in McAllister, which is where McFadden's mother lives, yeah. Madonna currently. He was an attorney in McAllister for over 40 years, including 25 years as a district court judge. Since retiring from the bench, his practice has focused on personal injury, general civil, and probate law. Sounds like he wanted to stay far away from criminal law. Yeah. So other than that, there's not a whole lot about him. Um, He went to Henderson State University where he graduated in 1979. He got his Juris Doctorate degree from the University of Arkansas School of Law in 1982. That was the year I was born. Yeah, I was 10. (laughs) He has bar admissions in the state courts of Oklahoma, Choctaw Nation, the Eastern District of Oklahoma, the Western District of Oklahoma, and the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm. His professional involvement, he is a member of Board of Directors of McAllister Regional Health Center, as well as Boys and Girls Club of McAllister. He is the chair of Oklahoma Judicial Nominating Commission, He served as a judge for the 18th Judicial District of Oklahoma for 25 years, including two years as a presiding judge for the East Central Judicial Administrative District and several years on the executive board of the Oklahoma Judicial Conference. He also served as an attorney coach for the McAllister High School mock trial program for 14 years. In 2022, his law firm was voted as U.S. News Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms. So... Following his bench time, he went into personal practice, but it didn't have anything to do with like criminal defense or yeah. anything of that nature. Interesting. I was just curious about him because he seems to not go easy on Jesse. One name that I do want to point out that's going to be important, and we're going to we're going to talk about this later because this comes up later, is the court clerk, Linda Price Williams. So remember that name. So on November 14th, McFadden attends his preliminary hearing. He submits an Alford plea. An Alford plea is very similar to a no contest plea. Why do they call it an Alford plea? It's named after a person who first tried to use that plea. And it's basically like not saying that you're guilty, but also not saying like, it's almost like not saying nothing, but being silent. So he submits an Alford plea. And as part of that Alford plea, what he does is he pleads to both the larceny and the first degree rape. And this is, is how his kind of deal is all put together for his plea. The reasoning is because he was in violation of probation when he assaulted Crystal Strong. So because of that, this was kind of all rolled up together. Even though the sentences and everything, all of that were different, it was kind of all rolled up together to cover both things as he was going through the judicial process. On November 14th, Ronnie May showed up for Russell Takira. 
I don't know if Ronnie May really knew much about the McFadden case. You don't see Ronnie May's name very often. Um, so I don't know if he was like a stand-in. So somebody had the ability to be a stand-in as an attorney. Somebody knew about that back in these days. <laughs> now fast forward to 2004. So at the beginning of 2004, on January 16th, McFadden is transferred to Lexington, Oklahoma, where the Lexington Assessment and Reception Center is. It's a maximum security prison. It holds 1,462 inmates and has only three programs, a career tech, criminal thinking, and education. And then sometime, I would say within probably about the first six months or so, he's transferred to Great Plains Correctional Facility, which is a medium security geo prison. The reason it says geo prison, the reason it's geo prison is because at that point in time, it is now a state prison, but at that point in time, it wasn't, it was privatized. That prison as a medium security prison held 2,040 inmates and it had zero programs. Oh, wow. On March 12th, so just two months into being in prison, McFadden receives his first prison violation, prison violation number one, which was classed as a class A infraction, and it was for possession of tobacco. Uh, what are the classes of, is it A through X or A through Z? Or? There is an X, no, it's not even It's not even in that order. Oh, okay. But there's a number of different ones, and it's, it's based on severity, and based on the severity is how you lose more of your credits that you've earned towards early release, toward right. basically for good behavior. Yeah. For making your bed and stuff like that. Stuff you should be doing, but. Yeah. <laughs> so then on November 2nd, so towards the, the end of that same year, Hasn't even been in prison for a year and has already had a prison violation. And McFadden files a motion for sentence modification and includes a letter that he had written on October 11th, 2004 to Judge Taylor. His purpose in writing the letter, and you know, you guys are free to look up the letter. We can provide you some links to look at a lot of these documents that we've found or that have been provided at some point or another. It's just interesting to kind of review some of these things. But if you read his letter, he talks about how he's going to attend a program for drug use. The prison doesn't have it. You know, so he talks about these different things he's going to do. You know, he's going to get his GED. He's going to, you know, do these things. And he's going to show everybody how he's changed and he can be a good person. And he's so sorry. And he can't imagine how his victim feels and the victim's family feels. That goes forward on November 2nd. On November 12th, Judge James Bland denies McFadden's motion for sentence modification. So even though he said it to Judge Taylor, Bland stepped in and was like, nope. Yes, he did. Typically when a victim is involved and it's a violent crime, any time that that prisoner goes forward for any type of parole consideration, a sentence commutation, anything of that nature, generally the district attorney's office will contact that victim or that victim's family and we'll have a conversation about, hey, this is what's going on. Would you like to speak? Would you like to provide a letter? You know, something of that nature. And so a victim advocate contacted her and said, hey, listen, I think that you need to work on forgiveness. He was high at the time. And maybe you should start allowing for him to write you some letters and, you know, kind of let this thing go. And basically what the person was trying to get her to do was to advocate for him being released. Right. And so it he's just changed. He's already apologized. And yeah, that's some BS. And it just completely just blows me away that somebody would re-victimize somebody for somebody who 
Like you did a horrible thing and it's not something that somebody gets over overnight or in a year or in two years or in three years. And so this person hasn't even had the opportunity to heal and you're picking away at their wounds. Yeah. It's really disgusting for two reasons. One, it was a female who should have been a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more empathetic. And two, it re-victimized the victim and pushed her over the edge. It did. It absolutely did. And in fact, she ended up moving to Kansas after all of this took place because she just mentally was, you know, it was a lot. So to then have somebody contact you who's supposed to be on your side, this is supposed to be like your team, you know, yeah, this is supposed to be somebody on your team, you know, going in to, to advocate for you is quite unsettling. So in 2005, on June 21st, McFadden receives his second prison violation, which was for possession of cigarettes, also a class A infraction. Then later that year, towards the end of the year, on November 25th, he receives his third prison violation, and that was for testing positive for THC, also considered a class A infraction. So in 2006, on April 6th, Riley Elizabeth Allen is born to Cody Allen and Holly Tanette L. Mayo. They were never married that I'm aware of, that I've been able to find. And in accordance with the things that he has himself said, I don't believe that they were ever married. In 2007, on January 7th, so the, the very beginning of the year, McFadden receives his fourth prison violation for being out of his cell during a lockdown, which was also considered a Class A infraction. 2008, on January 16th, Michael James Mayo was born to Cody Allen and Holly Tanette L. Mayo, who at this point in time would be 20 years old at the time. So she's had her second child, now a daughter and a son. What do we know about Cody? I don't know how good of a relationship Cody and Holly had at the point in time when they first got together and whatnot. He does openly admit the fact that he was really pushed out of their lives, and I think he was okay with that. He said he was going through some things and wouldn't have added value or positivity to his children's lives. So he accepted it, and he didn't fight it. He said that in both of their families, actually, he mentioned that there's a lot of people in both of their families who are not good people. So So he was fighting. So he had some demons. Yeah. And he felt like being out of the the kids' lives was probably better off for the kids, and he was doing them a, a justice by not being in their lives. And, you know, as sad as that sounds, it really takes a lot of humbleness and humility to be able to, to admit that, yeah. you know, to come out and say that, to admit that. So Now, keep in mind that Michael Mayo was born on January 16th, 2008. On February 20th, Joseph, Joe, E. Guess, and Holly Tanette L. Mayo get married in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So I don't know how long... Joe and Holly had been dating before they got married, but one of the things that he's come out and said is that he was with Holly when she was pregnant, so he always thought of Riley and Michael as his children. Yeah, which means that Riley would have been like one, one and a half, two years old when he got with her, and she was pregnant with Michael at the time. So it would have been, he would have been dating her in 2007. Right. So on April 22nd of 2008, Brittany Brewer is born to Nathan Brewer and Melania Brewer, or maiden name Gay, in Garland, Texas. 2009, on February 16th, so at the beginning of the year, 
McFadden receives his fifth prison violation for sexual activity, also considered a class A infraction and was consensual. So it involved some type of what we would believe to be obviously sex. Some type of consensual sex. Yes. Do we believe that to be true? Um, I didn't see anything indicating otherwise for that particular fraction. It is believed that in, on February 16th, with that prison violation number five, that that sexual activity was with the guy, as he is purported to be bisexual. Later on that year, just a few months later, on April 23rd, Ivy Berlin Webster is born to Justin and Ashley Webster. Um, Boykin is her maiden, name, her maiden name in Surprise, Arizona. I say to Justin and Ashley Webster, Ivy's biological father is not Justin, but Justin later adopts her, so... And he's, to my knowledge, has been the biggest kind of person in her life. So, so we don't know that he, that she was born to Justin and Ashley. Right. Actually, yeah. <laughs> right. She was born to Ashley Boykin. Right. Then in 2010, McFadden receives his sixth prison violation. This was a class A also infraction and it was another violation that was involved sexual activity this was his second incident which was a sexual activity and the inmate claimed that McFadden raped him and there's there's a, a statement where the inmate talks about McFadden raping him and what's interesting is that so that occurred on January 25th on February 3rd so that would be what maybe a week later maybe a little bit over a week later he receives his Seventh prison violation. This one was considered a class X, which is higher. It was considered a class X infraction for battery of another person. McFadden's eye was black. That's one of the things that was listed in the report. So in seeing that he had this activity, which they did not classify as rape for whatever reason, I'm not sure what the deal is. The person actually had a rape kit done on them as well. So it's possible was, he tried to attempt to rape another person and ended in a fight? Or it was that person. I don't know. Oh. It, could, it could have been that person or um, maybe some friends of that person. But I find it odd that those are so close together. Yeah. So I don't think that that's just a unique coincidence. I think they're probably very much related. So then on February 16th, so just almost a couple weeks later, Tiffany Dorgess is born to Joseph or Joe E. Guess and Holly Tanette L. Guess. In 2010, how old would Holly have been at the birth of her third child? 22? 22. 22 years. So 2012, on August 3rd, McFadden files an application for post-conviction relief or a motion to withdraw plea. This is another attempt for him to get out of prison early. And later that month, the state responds to McFadden's application for post-conviction relief or motion to withdraw plea, granting his request. Now, what's interesting about this is that it appears that he very well could have given the right attorney, worked his way out somehow, some way. And what he was using when he did this was he was saying that he was never informed of the 85% requirement that he pled to. One of the things that they did during this time frame when they granted it was that they reviewed the transcripts for any of the hearings that he had been in that would have, because they didn't find anything in paperwork, so there was no paperwork that indicated he was ever informed. It wasn't on anything he had ever signed. 
So they looked at the transcripts and the transcripts also did not show where the court had let him know either. So he was trying to use that as a way to say basically that his plea was involuntary because he didn't have that knowledge. Why didn't that work? Why did he get out if that was the case? So what ended up happening, and this same time frame, Crystal Strong was pregnant at the time, and they called her, and they said, hey, look, McFadden's trying to get out of prison. What are your thoughts? Do you want to write something or whatever to, like, help him get an early release? And she's like, absolutely not. Like, I'll drive down there. I'll do whatever it is that you need me to do. He should not be out of prison. Like, he's a danger. She said they ended up not calling her back, but one of the things that they did do, and this is probably why they didn't call her back, is that the DA and his attorney met and once they pulled all the evidence and they talked about what he pled to and the fact that he was in violation of his probation at the time that he assaulted Crystal, once all of those things were brought forward and evidence was shown, he backed away and he pulled that, what he filed, he pulled it. And the reason that he did, my assumption, I don't know this for sure and it's not written anywhere, is that one of the things that the state can do So even though the state was granting, saying, yes, okay, we messed up, the state's not just going to be like, all right, we're going to let you out. You're good to go. You're done. They have the option of pulling you into a trial, basically like starting from stage one. And I believe that they would have done that based on the fact that how brutal the rape was, based on the fact that Crystal wasn't going to let that happen. And when his attorney saw all the evidence I'm pretty sure he told him, hey, you very well could go away for even longer. So you might want to you might want to back out of this. Which makes sense. If he's withdrawing his plea, then you'd be like, okay, well, then you have to go to trial. So and in trial, now you have the opportunity. Everyone's going to talk about what happened. And now there's an opportunity for an even greater sentence. And not just that. One of the other things to keep in mind as well is that at this point in time, what we already know at this point in time by the time we've we've hit 2012, he has already had a seven, number. Yeah, seven yeah, infractions. Seven infractions. So that would have also played into it because sure. his defense attorney would have had all that and the DA would have had all that and would have been like, hey, guys, like, seriously, the jury's going to see all this. Right. <laughs> so, so yeah, he, he backed away. So there was some pretty clear and convincing evidence there. Sometime in 2013 is when... Holly and James Fleming become pen pals. And how this kind of occurs is that another inmate who he's, you know, kind of friends with while he's in prison tells him, you know, hey, my my girlfriend has this friend and she's looking for a pen pal. Would you be interested in, in being her pen pal? And he says, sure, why not? And so this pen pal ends up being Holly. Holly Guess. Who's married to Joe Guest at the time. Who's married to Joe Guest at the time. And I'm assuming living in Arkansas. Yes. And so something that's that's interesting, well, one, not only that she's married and she is still living there, is that maybe it's me. There's a word called hybristophilia. It's a paraphilia involving sexual interest and an attraction to those who commit crimes. I don't want to be judgmental. I don't know why you would want to write somebody in prison unless you were, it was for an educational purpose or, you know, something of that nature. I don't know what the draw to that would be. And definitely while you're married, to me, that just kind of shows it's a red flag to me is a red flag. So you're saying she could have potentially had a condition that caused her to be attracted to criminals? She definitely could have. 
So her and her and James Fleming become pen pals. They they start communicating with one another. And according to James Fleming in some of his previous interviews, he speaks about they were doing snail mail with one another is how they were communicating. So in January, so at the very beginning of that year, the state appoints Joe Layden to represent McFadden again. Now remember, Joe Layden early on was appointed in the very beginning to represent him when he was dealing with his grand larceny case. So he comes back into the picture. So on February 26th, of that same year, McFadden's mom, LaDonna Jean McFadden, and his grandma, Joyce Ann McFadden, who was married to his grandfather that he stole the money from, came to visit him in prison, and there's actually a photo of them together that was taken and that he had posted on his Facebook in 2013 while he was in prison. On March 2013, the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board, the Pardon and Parole Board were charged with criminal violations of the state's Open Meetings Act in connection with 51 early release requests considered but not listed on its public agenda since 2010. And so why is that important? So Oklahoma has a law where they have a site that you can go to and you can actually look for every month. You can look at the meeting minutes and you can look at the offenders who are being considered for parole or sentence commutation to see what their crimes are, who's being considered, and what their decision is. So it became a problem. Obviously, somebody addressed it because for three years, there were people that they weren't even showing on their stuff. And why is that? Why, why were there people that they weren't showing that they were releasing? Were they violent criminals? Were they, what was the deal and why? Why weren't you, why were you being secretive about it? So there was actually some, some legal action that was taken during that portion of time. During that portion of time, the current governor who's sitting at this time was not the governor at that time, just so that you're aware as we're going through this timeline. On April 15th, McFadden files a dismissal without prejudice concerning his application for post-conviction relief or motion to withdraw plea. So that was the last action that we had talked about where we said he almost could have had an opportunity to get out early, but chose otherwise based on what had come out. Right, and that was when the state should have called Crystal and said, hey, He's not getting out. He withdrew his plea. And but, should have even communicated why. Like, yeah. like, hey, this is what happened. You know, just as a sense of comfort, just letting her know. Right. Then on September 27th, McFadden now receives his eighth prison violation, and it's for a possession of a cell phone. Now, interesting. Remember how earlier we said all of these Class A violations. Class X violation is a higher violation. So having a cell phone is a class X violation. It's the same violation level as the assault charge. The assault charge that he got. Yeah. What I don't understand is how did a prison rape only get an A rating? Because they didn't classify it as a rape. What did they so classify it, consensual it as? Sex. Even the one where he claimed that he was raped? Yes. They considered it consensual? That's how they listed it. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And there's been some people calling it out because there's about a paragraph of the other inmate stating what happened and saying that it wasn't consensual. And like I said, he had gotten a rape kit done. So I don't know the details of that, you know, like the, the behind the scenes paperwork that was done, the medical stuff that was done. I don't, I don't know about any of that. Wow. But yeah, but I find it no strange coincidence that, you know, the assault occurred within about a week, week and a half following that. I think that's really messed up that you'd be violated in prison, you'd be sex sexually assaulted in prison, and that they would not take that serious. And then Absolutely. they would not charge him with additional sex crimes. That's yeah. at least two more sex crimes, potentially. 
and not just that. The crazy thing is that there's a lot of sex offenders in prison. And I don't know what their strategy is for how they separate prisoners when they have certain violations. But if you're not a sex offender and you're in there with 70% sex offenders was a number that I had heard for a particular prison in Oklahoma. That's a pretty large amount of sex offenders that you're surrounded by daily if you're an offender who doesn't fall into that category. Yeah. So. And we know now that Jesse likes boys and girls. So in 2014, McFadden and James Fleming become cellmates. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about was the possession of the cell phone case um, in 2013 on September 27th. And that would have been the cell phone incident where he had been using a smuggled cell phone to stalk some prison worker or some, some, some female. And she had contacted the prison and helped them execute a sting to catch him with the cell phone. It was also the one where they didn't do the procedure correctly, and then they couldn't charge him with the crime. That would have been the cell phone incident with that. And that makes sense. And even though they they were not able to charge him with a crime, they were able to still give him an infraction Right. that was still considered a Class X infraction right. for cell phone. So between the time that McFadden and James became cellmates, there's some things that James talks about occurred during their time as cellmates. In another podcast, I was listening to James, and he was kind of talking about his experience being in prison with Jesse, and he talks about the fact that he knew Jesse before he became roommates with him. So he was in jail, and he saw him in jail and whatnot, and he says his original impression of, of Jesse was that he was clean-cut, straight dude, like, had no problems with him, and so when he was being moved into his cell, he thought that he would be a good cellmate because... Like his mom was taking care of him. He had his own TV. He he wasn't going to have to depend on James for support or anything like that or for food. And so he thought it was a good move for him. He was looking at it as a positive thing. Once they became cellmates, it didn't take very long for the weirdness of Jesse to start putting James off. And so he said he would play grab ass and he would be playing these silly games where he's like trying to constantly push James further and further and but James kept putting a, a kibosh to it like he kept shutting it down like you don't play with me that way and so at some point Jesse decides to share with James his charges and why he's in prison for 20 years and he gives him some bogus story about the rape charge being statutory saying oh you know I was 19 she was 17 this that whatever and that wasn't the case at all And of course, James saw through that BS, and as soon as he realized that, then he pretty much lost respect for Jesse, and then the situation got very strange in their cell. And he talks about, like, not speaking to him, not talking to him. He said that they would each, whenever they they went into lockdown, he would do his own thing, and Jesse would do his own thing, and they didn't really talk at all. And that's how they spent a majority of the remainder of their time together in that cell, He does talk about an incident where he was very close to getting out where some of his friends ended up jumping Jesse. And I think he was in the, in the chow or something like that, but they jumped him and uh, they beat him up pretty bad. And they did it for James because James was trying to stay on the straight and narrow so he could get out early. And that's the last incident that I know of. Now I know that Jesse ended up transferring and when he transferred, he tried to give his porn collection to James, 
who didn't want it at all. It was like, no, I don't want none you got. Like, don't give me nothing. One thing I, I wanted to share is that one, one of the reasons that I think maybe that I think correlates with the timing of his move where they ended up cellmates is that after the cell phone incident, it was somewhere around that time frame where he was where he was moved, where he moved cells. So I think that it was as a result of the cell phone incident. Could have been, McFadden yeah. McFadden was moved, would be my sure. guess. While he was locked up there with, with, uh, with Jesse, he said Jesse was always super odd and he was always stalking like the female medics and like always like standing watching them off to the side, like stalking prey. And he said it was always strange to see him doing that. It was always like weird. Another thing that I know James had mentioned was that there was an incident. So they would do telemarketing phone calls while they were in this prison. And apparently the phones were set up to where they, it was like auto dialer where it calls a certain number where you weren't really weren't able to, to call out if you wanted to call out. Yeah. But while they were working that job, or at least McFadden was working that job. And that in this job, there was some women that worked in that same office. And one day he walked in and placed his genitals on her butt cheek, like pushed up against her. And that she had not reported it, but she fired him. I don't think he saw it. I think he was told about it because Jesse said Jesse came back and told me what he did and that he ended up getting fired from that job. Um, one of the things that's interesting and it's unfortunate that something like that didn't equate to an infraction that that wasn't reported. Like that should have been a requirement. Like that should have been a duty of whoever was there, regardless of whether or not you're part of the prison or not, that well, you report something of that nature. I don't understand how you can have that violent of a sexual offender around working females. around women. Yeah. Yeah. In a prison where there was an incident where they were actually alone, where that could have even happened because that could have been way worse. You know, the other thing, too, that actually by you saying that, that, that makes what it makes me think about is the fact that McFadden was processed through a facility that was a maximum security facility. And, you know, d different states and different facilities have requirements as to what offender requires maximum security prison or to be in a special population, but you've got somebody who's continually committing infractions that are that are similar to what he's been imprisoned for or that indicate he's trying to reach people or whatever the case may be. I find it odd that they're not doing something more than simply just maybe moving him in another cell. Paraphilia is a persistent and recurrent sexual interest, urges, fantasies, or behaviors of marked intensity involving objects, activities, or even situations that are atypical in nature. This particular diagnosis is mentioned in the DSM-5, which is the book of diagnoses for psychological disorders. And this is one of the disorders that's listed. And there's specific things that are listed as far as behavior goes, like not just having an urge, but basically being uncontrolled. So having like, an impulse where you, right. you can't control it. So, so doing something where somebody sees and you're doing something like putting your groin on somebody. And that's right. actually one of the things that's, that's one of the examples that's listed and not being able to hold a normal conversation, having really odd conversations with people. Yeah. So James says that Jesse's conversations constantly, like even when they wouldn't start sexual, they would gravitate towards the sexual nature and he would always end up going in that direction. And even the fact that he's sharing information, so him, so without James observing him putting his groin on somebody, the fact that he's sharing that information, like, he's not even trying to conceal it. He's got an issue that's making it hard for him to control his urges. And it makes me wonder, it should be a requirement 
for all offenders that there's some kind of psychological examination that's done prior to release. I was just getting ready to ask you, like, wouldn't that just be a basic function? Like, I would think that with all the, the multiple sexual infractions that he's had, which are multiple, like they would have done some type of like a psychological evaluation and determined if this guy was... When you're talking about releasing somebody or somebody being eligible to be released, whether it's when they've served their whole time or if they're if they're ever going to be looked at for early release or even good behavior, I think a very basic thing that correctional officers should be paying attention to is their behavior that's violent or their behavior that's sexual in nature yeah. or their behavior that indicates some type of psychological issue. And that should be reported. That should be something that's marked and that should be something that's looked into. It, sh- it shouldn't just be overlooked and unaddressed. Yeah. I want to say sometime around October is when McFadden moved sometime around October, maybe through December, some sometime within that time frame. I know that McFadden moved and he offered, you were talking about, he offered his porn collection to James that James refused. Didn't James say that he like ransacked his room after? In another podcast, he talks about the fact that after Jesse left, he was worried Jesse may have left something in his cell that might've got him in trouble. Like, so he went in the vents and he went, he looked everywhere to make sure there was nothing, no contraband that could have got him hemmed up and impacted his early release. That's interesting. Which by the it, way, I just want to make sure everybody knows James wasn't in there for a sexual crime. He was in there for drug related crimes. You know, he was completely disgusted by, by Jesse. Yeah. He definitely was mixed with some people who were not anything like him. Somewhere around the end of that year, so so going towards the end of 2015, once McFadden's left his James's cell, because remember him and Holly are pen pals, James ends up getting a letter from Holly stating that some inmate has started writing her that she doesn't know. Kind of odd, kind of, you know, kind of weird. And guess who the inmate is? The inmate's McFadden. So, of course, James, who's already thinking... McFadden is not on the up and up, lies, you know, has these different behaviors that are that are not normal, that he sees it as an issue. Now he's like, the only way that he could have gotten her information is to have gone through my stuff right. while I wasn't present. What I would want to know is, was there ever any conversation between, like, when they were still cool, when James and Jesse had still ha- were still getting to know each other, was there ever any conversation about Holly or about her kids. And the reason why I asked that question is because did Jesse target Holly because she had children? And did he pursue that information because he knew things about her that he otherwise wouldn't have known? Or was it just a coincidence that he found her information and she just happened to have children? I don't know. It makes me wonder about that. Yeah. And you know, another thing too is that when you're looking at behavior and things as well as being not able to control your desires is for you to go through somebody's stuff to get somebody's information. Like that's pretty extreme. Yeah. And did he do that with the cell phone in the instance where he had the cell phone the first time? Could he have done that with the cell phone? Probably if he did it once, I'm pretty sure he probably did it more than once in different regards. I would be interested to know if there was other people that he contacted beyond just Holly in 2016 between February and October of that year, so for for most of 2016, McFadden was having a conversation with somebody. And the reason that those dates are important is because on July 18th, McFadden receives his ninth prison violation, which is a Class X infraction 
and it's for possession of a cell phone again. So this is his second time with a cell phone. And between February and October on the cell phone, they find proof of two separate felonies, soliciting sexual conduct or communication with a minor by use of technology and pornography, procedure, produce, distribute, possess juvenile pornography. One of the things that's interesting about when they find this information, so this is Caitlin Babb. Caitlin Babb had been living with her family, and when she moved to Oklahoma, she said one day she got a weird message from somebody who had reached out to the phone number, I guess, to whoever owned it before because she had just moved and just gotten a new phone. And she said, you know, you've reached the wrong person, whatever. And he continues to message her first, just having kind of a normal conversation, almost like he's grooming her. At one point, he asked her during this conversation, which is what they find, is how old she is. And she tells him, and he's like, oh, send me proof. She was 15, right? She was 15. And she sends him proof. So in the phone, they find her school ID, which is what she sent him as proof because she didn't even have a license or a government ID. She had a school ID. So they find that in the phone. So it shows that he asked. It shows that he knew her age. And then it shows the progression through time between that time frame. So almost a year, almost that entire year, it shows how his conversation with her escalated. And he didn't just text her and call her. He also was writing her letters. So her grandfather, who she was staying with at the time, ended up contacting the prison and was like, hey, this inmate is contacting my granddaughter who's underage and is saying some really inappropriate things. What can we do about this? So not only does he get caught with the cell phone and not only do they find all these things in the cell phone, but then the grandfather comes forward and guess who ends up having to confirm that the photos on the phone are of Caitlin Babb, her dad. That's pretty upsetting, pretty upsetting that you would have to have to view something like that to confirm that, that that's your, you know, your child. It just really sucks. So the cell phone incident happened in July. So in August, Mind you, McFadden and Fleming are no longer summons. <laughs> um, Holly receives a speeding ticket near or en route to or from the Joseph Harp Correctional Center, which is where McFadden was located. It was uh, on, on Interstate 412, wasn't it? Yes. And, yeah. and when you map out the directions between her and her husband's house and the prison, it is exactly the directions for going to or from. Yeah. We can't be 100% certain that that's what she was doing, but all evidence points to the fact that she was driving from Arkansas to Lexington on 412, the route that would have taken her to JHCC. Yes. So then at the end of the year, so in December is when he receives his 10th prison violation, which is a class X infraction. And they call it a law violation. And that law violation is in regards to the conversations between February and October on the cell phone. Oh, wow. Yeah. Even though the cell phone was one incident, the fact that he was having the conversations and doing the things that he was doing on the phone was in addition to the infraction of the cell phone. So basically, it's an infraction because you broke a law. Right. I so gotcha. he received more than one. Yeah. Right. Man, I don't understand. With 10 infractions... Four class X infractions. And this is just up to 2016. Yeah. From 2010 to 2016, he had had four class X infractions, four major infractions in six years. So then in 2017, on January 24th, McFadden's mom, LaDonna, wants to make him a quilt. 
that might seem insignificant, but the reason that, that I bring this up is because you've got James who is talking about how she's financially supporting McFadden. We know that she's visiting McFadden. His grandmother's visiting McFadden. And she's communicating. So at this point in time, his grandmother has passed away. And so she posts a Facebook post on January 24th, 2017, talking about wanting to make him a quilt. And she's part of this like quilt group on Facebook. She's wanting to make a particular quilt. And she said, you know, he never got one from his grandmother. It could be love, but her love and support for her son. It looks like continued enablement. And it started when he was 16 and he sexually assaulted the girl on the bus. And it just continues. At what point do you hold your child accountable? But, you know, then people can argue if your child was in prison, are you just not going to care about him anymore? Are you no, going to care? You're you- going to care. But I don't know. I, I, I can tell you right now, if my child did something disgusting, like commit a violent rape of another woman, I'm not putting the money on his books. Oh, I'm either. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not That's supporting him. He's going to do his time, and he's going to he's going to do it as rough as he can because what he did was disgusting and not the way that I raised him. And it alludes to to me from my perspective. It looks like he he has a lack of respect for women, and I don't feel like he really respects his mom. And I feel like she tries to get his respect by constantly giving, even when he's wrong. She's always defending and protecting and and providing and never holding him accountable. Now on September 29th of 2017, now remember that that on December 6th was when he received his 10th prison violation. So on September 29th, which is almost a year later, he's charged with soliciting sexual conduct. So the, the two that we spoke of earlier, he's charged with both, which are both felonies, two very serious felonies involving a minor. So then on November 27th, towards the end of 2017, McFadden's attorney, Don F. Baker, this is a name that you need to pay attention to. Don F. Baker enters as his attorney. Now, the reason it's different when you hear entered as attorney. So one, there's no record that he submitted any paperwork saying that he's an indigent and he needs an attorney, that he can't afford an attorney. So what you see differently when you see paperwork, when it says that something's been filed as entrance of appearance is indicating that they have hired an attorney and that that's the attorney who's representing them. Like, hey, DA, I'm so-and-so, and and I'm going to be representing this this offender or this defendant. And so what's interesting is a couple things to me. So one is the fact that now at some point in time, either somebody's giving him money or he's come up with some money to hire this attorney. More than likely his mom got some money. She's probably dating her new boyfriend and... Got some nice new digs. and Now, his mom did start dating her boyfriend, who they've never married. Um, they've been dating for more than 10 years, and she started dating him after McFadden was in prison. They've been dating for a long time, more than 10 yeah. years. So when do you think they started dating, if you had to guess? It's 2023, so like 2013, 2014, like around then? Or yeah, yeah I, would even say somewhere, earlier? I would say somewhere around that time frame. Okay. Well, maybe a little bit earlier than that. So, right. so probably about a good maybe. I would... And I'm guessing probably about five years, maybe somewhere around that time, three to five years after he was gotcha. in prison. Okay. So this attorney, what I want you to pay attention to is this. So not only is this attorney not somebody who the state said, hey, we're going to give you this guy as public defender, but this is somebody who was hired somehow, some way by somebody. And he's a big name in the city of Tahlequah, Oklahoma. He was a judge. He is a former U.S. attorney. And he has two brothers who are also a big deal. 
Tim K. Baker, who is also an attorney. He's a criminal defense litigator, family law, and general civil litigation. And he's listed, which is a big deal, on America's Top 100 Attorneys. A pretty big deal for attorneys. And then his other brother, who's Bill J. Baker, is the former Cherokee Nation Principal Chief. Big deal in Oklahoma for Indians and for the Indian Nation and for laws pertaining to you if you're a registered Indian in Oklahoma or could be a registered in Indian in Oklahoma. There's a lot of Indian territory in Oklahoma. Now, you'll see Don Baker's name a lot. So here's an attorney who we have been told is the person who is known for kicking the can down the road. Giving you as much freedom as you can get before you have to do that next bit of time. In 2018, Oklahoma had the highest incarceration rate in the United States. On January 31st, McFadden receives a subpoena for a preliminary hearing that's supposed to occur on April 12th of that year. Remember that McFadden got his attorney in November of 2017. And so in January, two months later, after he's gotten his attorney, he receives a subpoena, as does Caitlin's grandfather, stating, hey, you guys need to be here for this hearing. So that's in January. Fast forward to April. On April 4th, Don F. Baker, his attorney, files a motion for continuance. And his reasoning is that he's going to be out of state. That's the first push on McFadden's end, the first delay. And it was a 76-day delay. That was the very first delay. So it was delayed by 76 days. And he waited until eight days prior to him supposed to be at this hearing to come forward and say, hey guys, I'm going to be out of state. So you didn't know back when you became his attorney in November that you were planning on going out of state in April on the date that you're supposed to be in a hearing? That shouldn't even be allowed. Like when you've had so much notice, if it wasn't something crazy, like you only got a day's notice or two days notice, that just shouldn't be acceptable. Yeah. And if anything, if, if you've got some crazy circumstance going on, then, you know, you should have to, to have somebody sit in for you. It shouldn't be allowed for you to just say, hey, guys, I can't be there. Let's push this. But it happened. And keep in mind that during this time, while these continuances are going on, Jesse McFadden is trying to maneuver Caitlin Babb to drop the charges. And at one point, she even talks about actually driving to Muskogee, because this, this case is in Muskogee County. She talks about driving there and telling them, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. She was sick of the calls. She was sick of the, you know, she was sick of all of it. And she was sick of the back and forth, sick of the pushes. She even talks about the fact that Jesse was sending people to drive around her neighborhood and like threaten her and just menacing her. She was scared. And guess what? The DA knew it. Yeah. The DA knew it. Anytime that from one side or the other side, whether it's the prosecution or it's the defense, you're required to notify the other side that you're wanting to do a continuance. And the other side gets to say whether or not they're okay with it. And even if they're not okay with it, a judge can still say, I'm going to approve this continuance. But the DA never, ever, not one time said, no, this isn't cool. This ain't okay. We can't move it. What I find interesting is that for five months, this attorney had no knowledge that he would be vacationing and out of state. And that just should not have been acceptable. And three months following the subpoena. So for three months... You couldn't make arrangements or let them know. Or had a backfill or whatever. Your brother's yeah. lawyers. 
three months, three months is enough time for you to, to have your brother backfill or, or to even three months ago when the subpoena was sent out to say, Hey, I just got this subpoena in January. I can't do this in April on this date. Okay. Well we can move it five days away. Mm -hmm. No, he waited purposefully yeah. until just before the hearing to come forward and say, Hey, I need a continuance. So yeah. definitely planned, definitely a, a strategy there. And of course, the judge approves it. The hearing is now moved to June. Now on April 11th, a new subpoena goes out. So, you know, he, he files a continuance. So now after the continuance, they have to send out a new subpoena. It happens pretty quick. So they send out the subpoena. And now the next hearing is for June um, 27th, 2018. So that's the next date that's scheduled. Then on May 3rd, 2018... LaDonna, who's McFadden's mom, begins working for Pittsburgh County Courthouse. Interesting. Why is that interesting? Because that's where he was convicted of both cases. And that is where he writes the judge. That is where he sends his motions requesting any type of commutation or any type of sentence reduction. That's where it goes. So then on, on June 27th, this is now the second time that McFadden's attorney files a motion for continuance. The reason is unknown. And this second time equates to a 123-day delay at this point now. And the reason for that is because now it is moved once again. So then in July, on July 6th, they mail out another subpoena. So as a result of this continuance, they mail out another subpoena. And then on August 6th, ding, ding, no surprise, his attorney files another continuance. And this continuance says that it is a motion for continuance with medical 12 weeks. So saying that he had a med medical emergency and that whatever was occurring was required that he have 12 weeks of time to recover. This is when he broke his foot? No broken foot would take 12 weeks. I think that was actually on the DA side when that oh, happened. Okay. So he files this. He has some kind of medical thing go on. And he says, hey, I'm, I need to be out for 12 weeks. Well, at that point in time, as a judge, I would think that you would say, all right, 12 weeks is a long time. We've already pushed this already 123 days. By you submitting this, it's now going to push it, which is your third time to do so. It's going to push it 231 days. Almost a year later, you need to figure something out. We can't, we can't give you 12 weeks. It's not going to happen. And by the way, you can't submit any more motions for continuance at this point. Like we need to, we need to have a hearing, but that doesn't happen. It gets approved. And the DA also doesn't object to that as well. So at this point in time, this is the third time and it equates to 231 days of a delay. So then on August 8th, they receive their subpoenas for the next hearing. And then on November 29th, the state of Oklahoma filed a continuance. And funny enough, this is the first time for the state to do it. The defense objects. There's no reason as to why, but the judge approves it. I'm sure because the defense has already done it several times. So why not? So then in 2019, so at the now we're in 2019, and this case started, so it was filed in September of 2017. So now we're in 2019, so on, on January 2nd, they receive subpoenas again. On January 14th, the DA requests another continuance. 
And so there's no there's no reasons listed for the DA as to why they're asking for a continuance. But I know that there were several things that had occurred. I believe one of them was the broken foot. So they approved it. So that was the second time that the DA asked for the case to be moved. So then on March 25th, the defense challenges the sufficiency or adequacy through a demur, demurmur, and a court date is set for the District Court of Appeals on April 25th, 2019. The DA requests a continuance for a third time. This would be six times total now that there's been a request to push the case down further down the road. And basically nothing came out of that saying that there wasn't adequacy or or sufficiency of, of evidence. There was. So nothing came out of that. So April 25th, the DA requests a continuance. This is the fourth for the state, and it's the seventh one overall. And then after that, well, actually that same day, they all received their subpoenas again for the next hearing. So on May 9th, now McFadden's attorney, he files a motion for continuance. He's going to be out of state. Another vacation. Another vacation. Always during a hearing. So this is the fourth now for McFadden's side, for the defense's side, and it's the eighth continuance that's taken place at this point in time. So McFadden's attorney has already moved it four times, and the district attorney has also moved it four times. Yes. So at this time, they're even Stephen with their... Their BS. Their BS. Yeah, with their BS. And the timing, the timing, I think, is something that's that to me is just, yeah, is just crazy to me. The timing of you know, waiting till just a couple of days before the hearing, and it's not an emergency. That should be an automatic denial, truthfully. In my opinion, that should be an automatic denial. So on June 6th, they actually do a district court arraignment. Um, they set the next hearing for August 9th, 2019. On August 9th was a disposition docket, and that is where neither side basically has to be there. Just It can be the attorneys that are involved in the case. Caitlin Babb wouldn't have to be there, and neither would... McFadden. So they meet, they set up a jury trial. So this is the first time that they set up a jury trial and they set the jury trial for September 30th, 2019. So remember that this was filed in September of 2017. So this is now two years that they couldn't get this case even to a jury trial, two years, and they're finally setting the first trial date, which is September 30th, 2019. So September 30th rolls around, supposed to be the trial date, but the trial is rescheduled. And the trial is rescheduled from September 30th, 2019 to February 5th, 2020. So now on November 1st of that year, the Oklahoma governor, because now the governor's changed, the Oklahoma governor, Kevin Stitt, who is the current governor sitting at this time, approved 527 prison commutations. That's early release or sentence reductions. That's a lot. He did this as his initiative for his reform that he basically used as his platform for running for office. Mm. On November 4th, so just three days later, so he did these 527 prison commutations that he signed. And then on November 4th, just three days later, Oklahoma made U.S. history when it released 462 prisoners in a single day. Then in 2020, on February 5th, when they're supposed to be going into trial, they move it. So this is the first move, and it's rescheduled for June 17th, 2020. 
Then on June 17th, they move it a second time, and it's moved to February 4th, 2022. Now, what's really important to call out on this June 17th, that would have been right at the, at the onset of COVID. You know, what's funny is that you can give a prisoner a job and have them be in telemarketers. You know, in some facilities, they're able to text and they're able to get online and you can't figure something out in two years to like do a WebEx or something, a Zoom or Skype jury, something. We have the technology. It just doesn't make sense. So then in August, so we haven't gotten to the trial date, the February 2022. And on October 30th, while McFadden has had 10 prison violations currently awaiting a jury trial for two serious felonies and two serious felonies that are very closely related to what he is in prison for to begin with. He has a bench warrant. The bench warrant is removed. It's dismissed. And it actually says that it's dismissed. It's in the best interest of the state to dismiss it. So they dismiss it. They pull back this warrant that he's got sitting there. He's got 10 infractions. He's pending two felonies. And on October 30th, 2020, this convicted rapist, this sex offender, is released from prison. He's released from prison, not entered as a sex offender, which is the responsibility at that time of the correctional facility. So I guess they don't have a process for that. So they release him. He's not in the system. And they have basically just said, oh, well, all this stuff has happened, all these, and you're currently pending two felony charges, but we'll release you. So they release him. And something interesting shows up. Now, he was released, you know, October 30th. On November 10th, there's a bench warrant, and it says failure to appear. So I'm, I'm a little bit unsure as to what that's related to. I don't know if that was a mistake or if that's related somehow some way to something, but it's, yeah. It's, it's not true. related to him maybe not checking in as a sexual offender? It, it could be, honestly, because you're, you're supposed to do it within a certain time frame. Yeah. And yeah. Um, So if he released on October 30th, that means 10 days later – he had not yet checked in as a sex offender. That could have been his failure to appear. He would have had to go to the county where he was moving to. But then that means that they would have been issued a bench warrant and then never went to go arrest him. Right. And not just that. One thing that's interesting as well. So that's that's on November 10th. But in the system that Oklahoma has, not all states have this, but in Oklahoma, they have a system where you can go online and you could look up the court dockets. And you can go into a particular case and you can go through every date that's shown up for everything that they're doing. When there's a conference, when there's a jury trial, when there's a disposition, all of those things. Not only did they remove the documents that you can download to actually look at the details, but the dates and the and the items have changed. So now the list doesn't even look the same as it looked prior to what we know ends up happening later on. So now in December, so in, in December of 2020, so now McFadden's been out for two months at this point, and the Webster family moves to Oklahoma. Then on December 13th, there is an emergency protective order that's issued to LaDonna Jean McFadden regarding Cody Ray McFadden, which is McFadden's younger brother, Cody. In this protective order, one of the things that stuck out to me as a red flag is that she mentions that Cody has a psychological disorder. And in it, she says that he's got schizoaffective disorder. And she mentions, you know, him thinking that drones are following him, that he has a microchip implanted 
and he destroys his eyeglasses because of something he believes in an implanted chip. During this incident where she says he got violent, she mentions that McFadden is present, that her boyfriend's present, and they mention that he ends up getting into his vehicle, lighting it on fire with himself inside of it, and talking about um, taking his life. He gets picked up during this incident when this stuff happens, and she gets her emergency protective order. However, so you can get an emergency protective order depending on what's happened, but then you have to show up to court to get like the actual protective order, like the full protective order, and neither one showed up. Cody didn't show up, and LaDonna didn't show up. So it ends up being dismissed. So so she files that on December 13th, and then on December 22nd, neither one of them show up, so, it, so the order is dismissed. On March 21st, 2006, there's an article regarding Linda Price Williams, who was 53 at the time. She pled guilty to one count of embezzlement by county officer and 20 counts of second-degree forgery. The pleas were entered as part of a plea agreement with prosecutors. Williams also resigned from her position as court clerk. She was the court clerk that we spoke about earlier that was listed on the paperwork as the court clerk. She was found guilty and sentenced her in accordance with the plea agreement. It was suspended and all of them, all of them were suspended. They did order her to pay a certain amount of money that had to do with court costs and restitution. And they also said that she needed to cover amounts that, that had to do with the embezzlement and all of that. And guess what? She never served any jail time for any of that. Pittsburgh County touched McFadden's case, never served any jail time. So now, here we are in 2021, January 8th, and Pittsburgh County court clerk, a different one, Cynthia Ledford was arrested on January 8th, 2021, during that time, LaDonna McFadden works for Pittsburgh County Courthouse. The case was initially reported in 2020 on June 18th when OSBI, OSBI was asked for their investigative assistance. She was charged with nepotism. She had hired a family member and she was paying them with funds from there. So some kind of under the table type deal. She was caught. So now this is two court clerks that have touched his case, have gotten in legal trouble. So now in January of 2021, McFadden posts a video on TikTok on his mother's property in McAllister. On January 15th, Lawrence Anderson was released early from prison in Oklahoma. Why is that important? He was part of the commutation. On February 9th, not even but maybe three weeks following his release, he kills three people. He killed a neighbor. He cut her heart out. He cooked it with potatoes, and then he tried to get his uncle and aunt to eat the heart before killing his uncle and his four-year-old granddaughter. The aunt ended up living. The sad thing is that they had no idea that he was released, a violent offender with a lengthy criminal record, until he showed up. He was just one of more than 800 inmates whose sentences were reviewed for commutation that January. And guess what? The corrections officials warned that he was a very high risk to reoffend, but it was ignored. So December 27th, that same year, Joe Guess files for divorce from Holly. Who, by the way, had moved now and was no longer in Arkansas. She's now living in Henrietta, right? Yes. 
And one of the things to, to kind of keep in mind is that when the Websters moved to Oklahoma, which was in December, they said that they met Holly and the kids and that their kids were instantly friends. So that tells me that in December of 2020, which is just two months after McFadden's released, Holly is already living in Oklahoma and Henrietta and is already friends with the Webster's kids. But do we have any receipts to prove that? Or is that just conjecture? That's, that's based on that's based on what the Webster's have said. They said yeah. that when they first moved there, they said the first time on the bus that their kids were immediate friends. Yeah. So. so that means that sometime between the time that Jesse McFadden got released until the time that the Webster's had moved to Oklahoma in December of 2020, that Holly had moved her and her kids to Henrietta and were high probability already living at the property. Yes. Raymond's property, Raymond Badgett. Yes. So then in January of 2022, Holly purchases a nine millimeter handgun. I don't know if this is out of character for her. I don't know if she was into shooting. I don't know if because she was living in Henrietta, which is small and the property is in the middle of nowhere. And the landowner claims that he hired her kind of as a groundskeeper for his property. But she purchases a firearm. On February 4th is supposed to be jury trial number four, and it's the third move of the jury trial. February 20th, Cody Ray McFadden kidnaps and locks a woman in a dog kennel. And a dog is even killed in the process. He sets the place on fire, the whole house. The cage that he's locked the girl in, who is his ex-girlfriend who came to check on him. No good deed. <laughs> goes unpunished. So he hits the, the, the cage with an axe. And when he hits the cage with the axe, it pops the door open. And she seizes that opportunity to escape. And she actually busts through a window to get out of there. So a very violent incident. Not an accident. Not a domestic dispute. Like very violent. Very, very violent. And she escapes, calls the police after the ordeal. You know, he ends up fighting with police and everything else. He ends up with actually nine separate charges from that specific incident. The female in this case was the stepdaughter of Crystal Strong's father. Common law step. Right, common law. Yeah. So a little bit too close um, to home for yeah. Crystal Strong. Obviously somebody that she knew, when she found out about it, she reached out to her to talk to her about it. On March 21st, Holly signs her marital settle, settlement agreement with Joe Guess. Uh, so March 21st, 2022, um, this is their final settlement. So they did their initial thing after he filed for the divorce. And then this was kind of the final settlement to be able to finalize the divorce. On April 14th, Cody McFadden, in regards to the case that we just mentioned, had all charges dismissed due to being a Sioux Indian due to the fact that the incidents took place on what's considered Indian land in Oklahoma. The federal government in a case such as this is required to take a case that falls under the Federal Major Crimes Act. So if it doesn't fall under the Federal Major Crimes Act, which lists things like murder, rape, assault, very serious crimes that would be considered felonies more than likely, they will allow for the Indian territories to prosecute the case, to take the case and do whatever they want with it. However, when it falls under the under the Federal Major Crimes Act, the federal government is required to take the case. So they don't have an option to say, oh, well, you guys dismissed it in your county. We're not going to do anything with it. They have to take action. So even though it appears that Cody McFadden has gotten away with this, he has not at this point in time. There's no indication that he has officially gotten away with this at this point in time. So right now, 
there are federal prosecutors who are engaging in this case. Now, what's unique about this is that even though the federal government has jurisdiction in this case currently, there are some things that are different when they're dealing with Indians in in the United States. Then on May 2nd, there is jury trial number five. They move the trial once again. This is the fourth time that they move it. On May 24th, Joe Guess and Holly Mayo get divorced. Their divorce is finalized. That same day, McFadden files his new address as the address where Holly Guess is at with the kids. So the day before they even go to get married. And that is his first time that he registers. So for the very first time, he registers on on May 24th, 2022. Almost a full two years after he's been released from prison. Nobody's came to look for him. Nobody's came to, to honor a bench warrant or anything. Nobody said, hey, like, where is this guy? So then on May 26th, just two days after her divorce is finalized, McFadden marries Holly. So she now becomes Holly McFadden. So basically all the way up until May 26th of 2022, from the time that McFadden got out of jail in 2020 and he was living with Holly, that whole time he was living with her illegally in violation of his requirements under being a registered sex offender. Yes. And then on that same day, so on that same day, he basically goes and tells Okmulgee County, which is a requirement that he's a registered sex offender. That's the first time that he does that since his release. So the first one that occurred the day before they got married had to do with his address, like notifying them of his address. But then the May 26th, the day that he got married is where he goes and says, Hey, I'm a sex offender. I need to check in with you guys. And that's the first time that he does so. Then on June 24th, there is his first and only sex offender compliance check conducted by Deputy Smalley from the Okmulgee County Sheriff's Office. On it, he says that a credit card bill was reviewed, but the name spelled wrong, which is odd to me because generally you match up names when you're when you're verifying something. So that was kind of strange to me. Smalley is a name that you'll recognize if you know about them talking about the clerk from the Sheriff's Office who signed off on the marriage license. That is the mom of this same Smalley. So they're in the same family. But keep in mind also that we're talking about a small town. It's like a small town where everybody knows everybody. So this is not a big city. It's just funny that I think it's the third clerk that's in question that we are like, hmm, this clerk, this third clerk. Pittsburgh, man. Yeah, they, they really know how to pick their clerks. Pittsburgh has some stuff going on. So then September 28th rolls around and jury trial number six. And this is the fifth move. In December of 2022, Justin Webster officially adopts Ivy Webster. Now we come to 2023. Sometime during the year, Riley Allen reports abuse to the school to no avail, according to classmates. This comes out later, and the friends are very distraught, saying that Riley not only attempted to contact the school and let the school know, but that she also tried to contact Child Protective Services. And one of the friends said that, McFadden and her mom found out and were very upset. And so she began to be very skittish about what she said to her friends. And her friends said they got so worried about her that they saw marks on her and that she would try to hide marks and that they tried to report things to the school and that they felt like the school not only didn't take it serious, but didn't even believe that anything was happening. Sad. It is sad. And one of the things that a lot of people have spoken about is that Holly did a lot of things in the community. She was a big supporter of her kids. You know, she made sweaters and T-shirts when her son wanted to to play football. And so to everybody from the outside looking in, they were thinking she's a cool, supportive mom. And so I don't know if that's maybe why the school didn't take things serious or not. It shouldn't have mattered. But 
they definitely should have looked into it. There should have been something official that, that took place at that point in time. And I'm not too sure on the date that McFadden pulled Riley out of school, but he did. And I don't know if it coincides. It very well probably does coincide with the timeline of when they found out that Riley had reported something. One thing that I can say that Holly's family had mentioned, we have not spoken with Holly's family. We've heard several interviews and there's been some things that have come out that have been debunked that they've said. So it makes it hard to believe some of the things that they've said, but they do mention that. And and I can see that there's a break of time where they're not really communicating with Holly just based on their social media. So I would be inclined to believe that there's some accuracy there, but they said that they weren't allowed to be alone with the kids. The kids weren't allowed to spend the night and that McFadden was like, he had to be there. He would. And, and when they were with them, that he was tracking them on their phones. So I don't know that there would have been an opportunity if that is indeed true for Riley to have said something to a family member, especially if at this point, if they know that that Riley has said something. So on January 15th, search records indicate that LaDonna McFadden, who's McFadden's mom, was still employed. That's when her, her employment seems to have dropped off or ended. That can't be officially confirmed with the courthouse, with the Pittsburgh County Courthouse. But she was employed from 2018 to at least January 15th of 2023. So for a while and during the time of McFadden's release and during the time of some of his actions that were filed within the courthouse as well. On January 29th, there's documentation that a 911 call is made by an anonymous female at 8.07 p.m. telling the operator that a registered sex offender is in the home, which is the McFadden home with three children and wanted it documented. I did want to say on that 911 call, I know that a deputy went out to the residence, right? Is that is that a fact? Did somebody go out to the It says to that confirm? there's a deputy assigned yeah. and it wasn't even assigned quick. It was like hours later. And I saw on social media where they were talking about that Sheriff Rice had said that even if a, if a sheriff had gone over there or a deputy had gone over there, they wouldn't have been able to walk through the house because sex offenders have rights. And so he wouldn't have been able to just walk in the house and walk through the house and open doors and look where he wanted to. Basically saying that it could have been happening right under the deputy's nose and he would, there's nothing he would have been able to do or really investigate. He would have had to have heard somebody in danger of something of that yeah. or something of that nature in order for him to have been legally able to enter the yeah. home yeah. or invited. Or, or have a search warrant. Right. Yeah. So one of those three things. So on February 15th, jury trial number seven, move number six. So six times they've now moved the jury trial on February 19th. So remember we talked about James Fleming earlier. On February 19th, James Fleming contacts the Henrietta Police Department because he has now learned and he mentions how McFadden had such a profound impact on him and his time with McFadden. Like McFadden really, his energy was so bad and he felt like he was so dangerous that he said he periodically was looking to see if he had gotten out. And then, of course, we know that he ended up with Holly's address and started writing her. All of those behaviors and all of the things that he had told him and the things that he had seen, he had been kind of keeping keeping tabs on whether or not he was out. So he sees that he's out. And he also sees that Holly's name's changed. And Holly's name is now McFadden. And so he starts thinking, no way. There's no way they got married. So he sees that McFadden is in Henrietta. So he contacts the Henrietta Police Department. He says, hey, do you guys have a sex offender registry? They say the state does. And he said, well, I know that there's a sex offender there living with kids and I can't find him on your sex offender registry. 
no response from them. So then the very next day he contacts Holly and he says that he just makes small talk with her, that he doesn't know if McFadden's looking at her phone. Cause again, he knows McFadden fairly well with, he's like, I didn't know if he had access to her phone was keeping tabs on her phone. So he just had a very innocent small talk kind of conversation with her. So then on April 29th, which is a Saturday of 2023, Annika Kramer, a friend of Tiffany Guest, was invited to the McFadden residence that weekend, along with Ivy Webster and Brittany Brewer. Annika responded saying that she could not participate. It was also short notice for her. She said, you know, maybe next weekend I can hang out, but I don't think this weekend's going to happen. She doesn't go. Um, Both Ivy Webster and Brittany Brewer end up going to the McFadden home for this, you know, sleepover. That night, which is Saturday, Ashley Webster, who is Ivy's mom, does speak to her. They're speaking at almost midnight. Nothing seems amiss at that point in time. We get to April 30th, which is Sunday. This is the day that both girls are supposed to be returning home. Ivy's mom, Ashley, receives a message from Ivy's phone that said, going to McAllister, be home around 5. She didn't think it was how she typically sounds, but she just kind of dismissed that. She'd been there before. But then later, when Ivy's supposed to be home, McFadden calls Ashley and says there's something up with the phones, that they're still in McAllister, and basically to, to ease their minds about Ivy not returning home. I personally think that was a ploy to keep the family from coming to the house to pick up their kids. I think that was a way to get them distracted and to make them think they were in McAllister because they, were, they weren't in McAllister. They were at the house. And I know that the Websters just lived a mile away. So they could have just... Not even a mile. They lived a yeah, quarter mile away. A quarter mile away. They could have just drove over and been knocked on the door and been like, hey, I'm here to pick up Ivy. But I, I think that was part of his ploy when he knew they were supposed to be back. He was trying to buy himself some time. He's like, hey, we're still not here. If you don't think the family's there, you're not going to go there. What would be the point? Not just that, but you find out later that the property owner saw McFadden parking his truck somewhere off the property where hiding they stay. It. Yeah, yeah he was and hiding he said it. he was hiding it from a family member. Yeah. You know, they have their conversation that afternoon where he's basically saying, hey, we're, we're still out and about. Then later that evening, McFadden then calls his mom telling her that, you know, hey, because he's got a court hearing the, the following morning. That's supposed to be his jury trial that now cannot be pushed anymore. And oh, by the way, his attorney has passed away. So his attorney's passed away. So he's now got a different attorney at this point in time who probably isn't the person who keeps kicking the can down the road. So he actually has to show up. So day before his hearing, he calls his mom and says, hey, I'm not going back to prison. I'm thinking about killing myself. I don't know if she didn't take it as being serious or not, whatever the case may be, but she didn't go check on him. She, she didn't do anything, not to our knowledge through our investigation. So then at about 8 o'clock p.m. that night, he contacts Caitlin Babb. As we know, it's through an account that may have been Holly's, t- basically telling her that because she continued to move forward with this, that this is all her fault, that closes out Sunday. So then on Monday, May 1st, at 1.30 a.m., there was a report that the girls had been seen with McFadden in a white truck. Now, because of this report, whether it was true or not, Sunday night when the Websters couldn't reach Ivy anyways and her Life360 had been turned off, which is like a family kind of monitoring app, um, they decided to file a missing persons report. So when the sighting came out at 1.30 a.m., at 7.55 a.m., the Oklahoma Highway Patrol posted a Facebook message for a missing and endangered juvenile. So this was for both girls, for Ivy Webster and Brittany Brewer. Then at 10.21 a.m., 
an endangered missing advisory is sent out. At 12.45 p.m., the last cell phone pinged on or near the property. It was Holly's, Tiffany's lost signal. At 1.25 p.m., the Okmulgee Sheriff's Department, armed with the failure to appear warrant in regards to the hearing that was scheduled at 9 o'clock a.m. that morning, and a, now a search warrant based on everything that they've kind of collected up to this point. And they say that when they arrived that the door to the house is found ajar, that it was found open, they enter the property. At 3 o'clock p.m., the Okmulgee Sheriff's Department finds seven deceased bodies, which were Holly, Riley, Michael, Tiffany, and then Brittany Brewer and Ivy Webster. And then, of course, McFadden's found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. At this point in time, Justin Webster, who's Ivy Webster's dad, notifies Nathan Brewer because he actually showed up at the property upset that nobody was giving him any information. And again, they only live a quarter mile away, so I'm sure he saw everything that was kind of playing out and he was just upset. He finds out on scene that they found his daughter. And so he catches up with Nathan Brewer, who is completely caught off guard. The police hadn't even gotten to him yet, and he lets them know. And he just was so very shocked, so very shocked. The same day, as for anybody who's been tracking this case, as we know, throughout the night, they continue their investigation. They take control of the 2007 Chevrolet Avalanche and put what's called a no-touch hold on it. So they hadn't pulled anything out of it. They weren't really doing anything with it, but you weren't allowed to do anything with it either. That same night, the Henrietta School hosted a vigil for the kids and also because they're, they all went to the same school. So you've got five kids from the school who you're going to have a lot of students who are going to have issues about. So they had grief counselors there and also had some ministers or like clergy there to talk to students who wanted to talk, who were having a lot of emotions at that point in time. So then on May 2nd, Tuesday, the police informed the Webster family that McFadden planned to kill each victim and possibly that three might have escaped. You know, we heard conversations that maybe some of them had tried to flee. Nothing official to that nature has come out. You know, we heard that he staged bodies and whatnot. Nothing official has come out. If he did stage bodies, I think it would have been for concealment and not that he was trying to be strategic in any way. The state medical examiner's office notifies the families of the manner of death, so it's it's not until Tuesday where they officially are told, hey, you know, this is this is what occurred and this is how they died. Lynn Watt, who's Holly's aunt and the sister to her dad, says that a girl McFadden paid to lie to his wife, Holly, called her and said, hey, he paid me to basically tell Holly that it was a misunderstanding. She didn't get a name. She didn't go to the police. And again, this is the same family. It's unfortunate, but this is the same family that a lot of things have been uncovered to be untrue that they've come forward and said so. And this person has never come forward, so I don't even know that this person exists, truthfully. There's, there's no record indicating that this person exists. Law enforcement agencies, the Okmulgee Police Department, the Okmulgee Sheriff's Department, and the Violent Crimes Task Force from the DA's office and OSBI were all on scene on day one. One thing for you to know, so the Okmulgee Sheriff's Department, Eddie Rice, that you've heard us talk about, he was one who had kind of given the first thing with the press the day of. Joe Prentice is the Okmulgee police chief, and he's also the crimes task force commander. Just something interesting. So even though those are supposed to be two separate organizations, he not only was he the police chief, but he's also the, the one in charge of that group as well. 
As for OSBI, I don't know who the in-charge person was on scene or who they sent, but Angela Spurlock is who is in charge. She's the director of OSBI. So on May 3rd, which is Wednesday, there's a press release. It's the first official press release that's held, and that's held by Joe Prentice, chief of police for Okmulgee Police Department, and that's where he releases what came out from the medical examiner. The same day, LaDonna McFadden scrubs her Facebook profile. She kind of tries to make it hard for people to find out who she is and who's related to her and who her friends are, that, those kind of things. Um, I'm sure she was getting inundated with phone calls and messages and whatnot. She's pretty much stayed out of the media other than her initial reaction. Really haven't heard anything from her. And she hasn't responded to any messages to put her version of a story out or to, or to share any, any details that she wants to share. And she's not done that with anybody. On May 4th, which is Thursday, the Websters feel like they're not getting really any information from the police, and they're really upset that the crime scene was shut down so quickly. So once the, the tapes pulled down, which I believe actually happened the very next day, which would have been Tuesday, so this is a couple days later, the Websters get permission from the property owner to go inside the home, and they take a news station with them just in case anything's found in order for them to have it documented and it not seem like they did something crazy. And... What they found was horrific, found a number of different things, things like chains and, and sexual things and drugs, and they even found their daughter's cell phone, none of which had been seized by the police. Now, they call the police, they let the police know, stepped outside, called their attorney. Their attorney told them to go back inside, which the grandmother ended up doing, the mother of Ashley, who is Ivy Webster's mom. She goes in because she said she couldn't allow for her daughter to go in the second time. So they document everything, they get pictures, they get video, and they report it to the police. The police come back, they said that their investigation was done, and then on Friday the Websters go back. So after they've done this video and the news stations come through and they've reported it and they're upset with how the investigation's going and the information that they're not getting, the silent treatment that they're getting, they go in on Friday and again they find more evidence that has not been seized, any of the law enforcement agencies involved, and so they are livid, they're upset. And so as a result of this second visit by the Websters to the home, OSBI takes on the investigation as the lead agency at the request of the Okmulgee County District Attorney, Carol Liskey. Carol Liskey is listed in some documents as well, just to note. What kind of documents? In some of the legal documents, either involving McFadden or Pageant. Um, who Pageant is the Raymond, Del Pageant is the senior, is the owner of the property. property. Yes, that they were living on. On May 6th, which is that Saturday, so this is after OSBI has taken over the scene, law enforcement agencies were informed of a storage facility. No evidence was seized, as law enforcement said, that it just only contained pool supplies that the McFaddens had in there. However, there's no indication that the McFaddens had a pool, owned a pool, serviced a pool. That same day, services are held for Ivy Berlin Webster. She's laid to rest. On May 8th, which is that next Monday, Eight pieces of evidence are seized from the Chevrolet Avalanche. And just for your awareness, as far as what's come forward up to date, there were a total of eight search warrants. And as of my knowledge to date, um, I believe like maybe only three have come back. And basically what that means is that um, the three that have come back, they list exactly what they removed and what, what it was for, that kind of thing. So not everything has come out yet as to what they've seized and thought was, was truly evidence or not. On May 9th, which was Tuesday, the medical examiner shares with Shannon Boykin, who is Ivy's grandmother and the mother of Ashley, that Ivy had been sexually assaulted. 
I have not heard that any of the other girls have been sexually assaulted or that Michael was sexually assaulted. However, that could be a matter of families choosing to release that information or law enforcement choosing to release that information at this time. On that same day, OSBI employs sonar devices, has dive teams out. Um, They bring out excavators onto the land, and they spotted, like, some activity within one of the ponds, but they didn't find anything. The excavator crews didn't find anything that has been released anyways at this point in time. That same day, Lynn Watt, Holly's aunt, again, reported that they found bloody clothes, bones, and a stack of photos and binders. No confirmation exists with photos, video, or seizure evidence that any of this was accurate. And the Websters have actually come forward and said that a majority of what they said is completely false and that it was upsetting that that stuff was even put out there because it distracts from the reality of the case and what's actually happening. There was indeed a ledger with names and dates of birth that were turned over. However, they were not turned over by Holly's family. That was by the Websters. So I don't even know that they actually even saw it. I do believe that they were all in the house at one point in time together, but no evidence to date. On May 10th, which was Wednesday, services are held for Brittany Brewer, and Brittany Brewer is laid to rest. The same day, the Webster family's attorney, Cameron Spaulding, turns over records pulled by a private investigator working for him that revealed 32 cell phones registered to the property. And then lastly, just the other day, on the either 24th or 25th, some documents came out where the Okmulgee County Sheriff's Department is trying to prove that they had done some sort of checks. So for the level of sex offender that McFadden was, he was required to have 90-day verifications done on his address. Surprisingly, and you'll see this in our video, obviously not in the podcast, so you probably want to go take a look at the video on YouTube. We'll include a link in the show notes. But guys, his signatures do not match at all. At all. Even looking back at his old court documents from, from way back, nothing like his signature. The only thing that is in common is that all the ones that appears that he didn't sign them, they all match like the same person forged all the names. So I'm throwing that out there because I looked at a lot of paperwork and none of those signatures resemble McFadden's signature. Most recently, his marriage license. That brings us to a conclusion, guys, on this current timeline. We will definitely keep the timeline updated and we will keep you guys informed of anything that, that comes forward We oftentimes in this case aren't the first to come out with information. We try to really scrutinize what comes forward and and we try to make sure that it's accurate and that we're not just sharing something that somebody's thrown out. There are a lot of fishy things in this case. There are a lot of failures that have happened within the law enforcement agencies, within the state, and it's truly tragic that everybody's being so quiet right now. And it really feels like a cover-up, and it really feels like they're grasping at straws and trying to stay quiet to get the case to die down. I'm very interested to see what comes back with the autopsies and what's released with that, what additional information they find on the digital devices. You know, there's a lot of speculation right now in terms of Raymond Paget and his background and his social media presence and the fact that there's some inappropriate things going on there between him and underage girls on his social media. And that may just be him just being a pervert and not really being a sex offender. I don't know, but I feel like the truth will come out. The digital evidence that they get from McFadden's phone, from Holly's phone, from the computers they had in the house. If there is a connection, it'll be made digitally and we'll be able to track that down to, you know, something something interesting that I will say, just being the devil's advocate as far as Padge is concerned, is that 
he admitted right away that he saw McFadden trying to conceal the truck. Now, whether that was to his benefit or him being transparent, he shared that information. Something that does appear a little bit fishy to me is the fact that some of his legal stuff that he's doing, he's doing in Pittsburgh County, which is not the county that he lives in. He lives in Okmulgee County because he's in Henrietta. And that is the area where obviously the McFadden's are and where McFadden's case has gone through. So that seems a little bit strange. However, his ex-wife works for Okmulgee County. Um, I want to say property records or something um, like that, but um, that could be why he's doing those things in another county because she has access to maybe the things that flow through there. So right now at this point in time, I haven't found anything solid as far as Padgett's concerned that links him in any way, either to McFadden's family, to Holly's family, to really anybody in this case, honestly. Does he have a record of some degree? Very small one. It's honestly more to deal, deal with his wife. His wife at one point, or ex-wife, had gotten a protective order and they're currently in a, in a legal battle as far as property is concerned. But as far as this case goes, there's nothing solid out there. There are some social media things that have been posted that are questioning as to him maybe being a potential offender that we don't know of at this point in time, but um, nothing solid as of this point. And that brings us to current. Um, if you guys have any questions, anything that you want to submit, whether you want to submit it anonymously or you know, if you have anything to add to the timeline or anything of that nature, feel free to reach out to us. And we'd be happy to interview you or to take that information and to further compile things as they roll out. We definitely want to engage the different states in creating a situation where this doesn't happen again, that we can mitigate things such as this. Thank you guys for your support and for listening. It's important for us to understand that a lot had to happen to align for us to be where we are today with this case. When we study and analyze the timeline, it reveals a much bigger picture. One that's been painted over a span of multiple lives with years of failures and mistakes. No tragedy should be without lessons in learning, and this case has certainly identified the gaps in not just the state, the justice system, and the correction system, but in the access to information and the education on that access for families. No one is thinking that their children are exposed to sexual predators as much as they might be. The problem is that there are priests, law enforcement, politicians, famous individuals, and normal everyday people that have been found to be despicable and deplorable predators hiding in plain sight. These people attend your church, they teach your schools, they coach your athletes, and they've even been in your home. Let that settle in. Less than one out of every 10 sexual predators are actually caught and convicted of a crime. That means that there are nine times more predators that we don't know about than the ones that we do. Those that are often caught are the worst of the worst. The ones who are so out of control that hiding their true nature is impossible. When looking at the criminal justice system, we should be advocating to hold those responsible for our safety accountable for failures, especially when they're grossly negligent. And not just in Oklahoma, but throughout the entire nation. We should not accept prayers and condolences, apologies and best wishes when they have knowingly failed as a direct result of their own failure to act personal or political initiatives, failure to follow basic policies and daily operational activities like ensuring a sex offender is registered in the county. There should be no slaps on the wrist and moot descriptions of what will be done better in the future. Those responsible should be decent enough to step down and where decency does not prevail, they should be fired and where applicable charges levied. Some of the omissions in this case are downright criminal and charges and indictments should be issued. 
We demand a pause in early release of all sexual predators until the system has been corrected. Releasing one more violent sexual predator into society is not worth the potential damage that can be done by letting the wrong criminal out not even one day early. This case remains in progress. We urge anyone possessing pertinent information to contact the OSBI tip line at 1-800-522-8017 or send an email to tips at osbi.ok.gov. Confidentiality is guaranteed for those providing information. So what's to come on all of this? So as we've discussed, this this case really started long ago and it's continued and it hasn't stopped yet. So there's going to be a lot more investigation. There's going to be some legislation that needs to happen in Oklahoma and across the U.S. And then, of course, there's going to be some lawsuits in connection with this. We will see that. We live in a world where we have so much information at our fingertips, we have the ability to quickly search for information on anyone. So much can be gleaned from a quick Google search or even a deeper probe. Obviously, we can't search everyone. But at a minimum, we should know who the people are that our children spend the most time with. Coaches, other kids' parents, families and friends, no one should be off limits. And if your spidey senses have you on edge, then I encourage you to dig deeper. Question, who are my kids with? And look those people up. Make sure that they are who they say they are. Trust the red flags. If you feel that urge, that instinct that says something is wrong, then take action on that. Even if you're wrong, it's better for you to be wrong than for you to not take action and then be second guessing why you didn't take action on that on that gut feeling that you had. And when investigators are not doing their job, hold them accountable. Hold them accountable not doing that job. Make sure that you advocate for those things like Ivy Webster's father has been doing and McFadden's two survivors, Crystal Strong and Caitlin Babb have. Have the strength and the courage to go out there and advocate for those people that can't advocate for themselves. themselves. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.